Welcome to a new series of close readings, looking at the lives and voices of women in medieval literature. I'm Mary Wellesley, a contributor to the LRB, and I'm joined for this series by Irina Dumitrescu, also an LRB contributor, who teaches medieval literature at the University of Bonn. Hello, Irina. Hello. Over the next four episodes, we'll be exploring the common experiences of women over more than a thousand years of history, roughly from the year 300 to 1500. And today, we're starting on a love cruise to Jerusalem with an old English text about a repentant sinner. It's a story that takes us from the sea to the desert, which features sex tourism, sin, redemption, and an obliging lion. It also contains one of the most compelling images of female authority to have come down to us from the medieval period. We are, of course, talking about St. Mary of Egypt. So, Irina, who was Mary of Egypt, and how do we know about her? Sure. Perhaps it might be useful first to just say how she got to, to England in the Middle Ages. So Mary begins as an anecdote in the 6th century Greek life of St. Syriacus. And then she's fleshed out into a longer story, also in Greek, which is attributed to Sophronius of Jerusalem, who was a monk and theologian. There's no evidence that she actually existed, but this doesn't seem to have stopped her career at all. In the 8th century, a monk named Paul, who is the deacon of Naples, translates this story into Latin, and it's immensely popular. There are over 100 manuscripts of it circulating around Europe. And then by the early 11th century, we have a translation into Old English, which exists in three versions, Three, but two of them are fragmentary. Actually, all of them are fragmentary. It's anonymous. It's very close to the Latin, so it's often not very good Old English. It's a little bit clunky because it's following the Latin so so closely and a little bit unimaginably. But the story is clearly interesting at the time, which is why we have multiple copies of it. And of course, we only have one of Beowulf. And what's the story that these texts tell us about Mary? Mary's born in Egypt anywhere between the 3rd and the 5th century. She leaves her family at the age of 12 and goes to Alexandria. It's a sex in the city situation, uh, late antique style. She basically just wants to live as sinful a life as possible, drinks, eats, and has all the sex she can. And this is something that's quite fascinating about the story. There are late antique stories about sex workers, which are quite judgmental about, about their erotic lives. In this tale, it's very, very clear that Mary is not someone who has sex for money. She's poor, and she insists on staying poor because she will not take money for sex, uh, for fear that she might actually turn away suitors. So she is is basically living in sin for 17 years, and then in her late 20s is drawn by some good-looking sailors who are about to go to Jerusalem to participate in the exaltation of the Holy Cross. She just wants to be on the boat with all of these men. So she goes with them, uh, winds up in Jerusalem, seduces more people while there, of course. And as everybody's rushing into the temple to take a look at the Holy Cross, mysterious force field keeps her back. It's almost like a sci-fi movie. She just keeps trying to get through. And uh, she comes up against this force field and is thrown back, goes into a courtyard, prays to the Virgin Mary, and then with the support of the Virgin Mary is able to go into, into the temple and to worship the Holy Cross. She's then baptized, runs across the River Jordan with three loaves of bread, and spends the rest of her life wandering around the desert. 
part of it, thinking about her temptations and and all of the good times she used to have in Alexandria. And then it, it seems that for the latter part of her life, sort of into her 90s, she is no longer troubled by temptations. But that's something we could talk about because the Old English does funny things with her memories and her her, her own life in the desert. I think what's striking about this story by comparison with many other lives of female saints from the Middle Ages that had a similar kind of popularity is that it's a very kindly story in a way. This is a woman who commits terrible sin and she does go through torments but she finds redemption and she's not she's not completely fallen. She's she's able to to transition from her life of sin into this path of asceticism and to become a figure of great authority. And there's something really, there's something really comforting about the idea that an audience in the Middle Ages could be presented with an image of a woman like that that wasn't so explicitly misogynistic in its description of that woman. I love that. And, and you know, I think there is there's a sort of standard reading on on Mary, which is that she is a model of repentance, right? She exists to prove the extent of God's grace. And so the life exaggerates her sinfulness almost to a ridiculous extent, or I should say she does so when she tells her own story in the life, which is how, how we find out about her youth. So there's a sense that in order to really believe in God's ability to forgive human sin, you have to see the worst possible kind of sinner being forgiven, and not just forgiven, but as you said, lifted up, becoming even even a greater saint or greater holy figure than other people might be. But what I, I guess what I would say appeals to me about about her is that I think she's she's not a person who really stays put. And that's true in a literal sense, in that she wa- seems to wander around the desert her whole life. And that's quite unusual. And that's something I've been thinking about more and more recently, that that's really quite strange that even in this third, fourth, fifth century world in which people go out into the desert to to face demons, to purify their souls, to punish their bodies and become less attached to the desires and the needs of the body in order to, to make themselves more pleasing to God. Even in that world, Hermits don't tend to roam around the desert wildly. <laughs> they tend to stay put in one place. They might have a cell. They might live in a monastic community. They tend to be enclosed, as, as you said. And Mary's not enclosed. She seems to really sleep under the open sky. Her body is, is battered by the elements. It's uh, darkened by the sun. She's thin. Her hair is gray and short. There's a sense in which she's, she's really been out in nature and almost a part of nature, through this time spent in the desert. And I think that there's something about the way that she wanders around the desert that also reflects her inner spiritual state, that she's always still a little in between sinfulness and holiness, especially in the Old English version. She's never fully, fully without temptation. Yeah, and I think that's the very kind of human and relatable part about her story. In your wonderful monograph, The Experience of Education in Anglo-Saxon England, you have this great line that she's, quote, a living example of ongoing emotional struggle in the pursuit of asceticism. And I think that really encapsulates it, that what we have here is this image of a woman who isn't perfect, who is striving all the time, and who comes from a state of supreme imperfection and goes on attempting to reach perfection but never quite achieves it. 
Absolutely. And I think maybe this is the point to uh, which we have to introduce the other character in the story in order to understand what's really so special about Mary. So in the Greek life and the Latin life and the Old English life, all of which are, are translations of, of each other, we don't meet Mary directly. There's a frame story around her that begins with Zosimus, a monk who is basically given to a monastery as soon as he's born. He almost goes from his mother's womb into the monastic life. So you get a sense that he's never felt any kind of temptation whatsoever. He's never dealt with sinfulness or desire or anything like that, anything messy. And Zosimus grows up in this monastery and is perfect. He's basically perfect. He does everything right. He loves prayer. He loves the study of scripture. He's so immaculate in his embodiment of the monastic life that people come to him to learn from him, to hold him up as an example and model themselves after him, which is kind of a typical thing we see in these desert stories, that there are superstar monks uh, who, who become attractions to others. He has visions. He has divine visions. I mean, he's absolutely the model of a perfect monk. And around the age of 53, he has a bit of a monastic midlife crisis and begins to be worried that he might be just a little too perfect. Let me read a section of Humagenes' translation of the Old English. He was oppressed by certain thoughts to the effect that he might be perfect in all things and might need no further teaching or example in his mind. And he would speak thus, Can it be that there is any monk on earth who can teach me anything new or help me in any matters that I myself do not know or that I myself have not perfected in monastic works? Or is there anyone among those who love the desert who is superior to me in his actions? I think it really gives a sense of, of uh, Zosimus's pride at this point. He's he's done everything so well for so long. He's been really the good kid, the good student, that he now feels he has nothing less left to learn. And that's troubling to him because I guess he senses in some way that he is incomplete. So he has a, an angel appears to him, leads him to another monastery, which is even stricter and even more perfect. It's on the edge of the desert and no one knows where it is, and they keep everything absolutely secret. So it's a little bit the opposite of his first monastery, where he seems to have been famous. And he, they have a, a practice at Lent, where the, the monks go out into the desert and do something spiritual on their own, and then come back and never tell anyone about it. He goes out into the desert looking for a teacher. It's explicitly put that way. He wants to find someone to learn from. We have to imagine he's pretty old at this point already. And that's when he sees a creature, a body, some kind of unidentified thing speeding past, past him. And he gives chase. And it turns out to be Mary. And he almost compels her to tell her story. So really, what I'm trying to say is this whole, this whole uh, story of Mary of Egypt is, is set in the context of masculine monastic perfection. You know, what can a man who has done everything right spiritually as a Christian learn? And it turns out the things that he has to learn have to do with the power of not being so immaculate all of the time, of not having done everything right. And I think we should we should just take a step back and, and really flesh out, pun somewhat intended, just how much Mary is an imperfect figure in this life before she gets to the desert. 
you know, she lives this life in Alexandria. As you said, she she won't even take money for the sex that she has. And then there's this extraordinary scene, which perhaps we'll talk about in a moment, when she sees basically these hunky dudes on the beach and she wants to go with them and she wants to be with them. And so she just gets on the boat and follows them. And while she's on the boat traveling to Jerusalem, the sea itself is disgusted by her sinful ways. And then when she gets to Jerusalem, what she desires is to have sight of the Virgin, which is also a really interesting moment. But, you know, the details about Mary's life are are so fantastic in opposition to this image of moral rectitude that we get from Zosimus. I think we have to go even a little deeper into how absolutely terrible she is. Because on the sea, she says something like, there is no, there is no form of depravity, which I was not teaching in the boat. So you get a sense, it's not that she's ha- just having sex with all of these men. She's really, she's teaching them to do every possible thing imaginable. And there's this line in the Latin, which says something like she, she, I had sex with both the willing and the unwilling. Volentis et nolentis. And we have this line in two versions in the Old English. And one, it's translated uh, literally, right? The, the willing and the unwilling. And in the other, someone has changed it to the willing and the giving. Willendan on silendan. So it sounds like one of the scribes had a problem with it. Notice that there was something deeply disturbing about it. And what I would say is that she's, the implication is that she's a rapist. It's not just that she desires men and they see her and she's attractive and available and they have sex with her. It's also that she forces herself onto men. That's a tiny little detail, but it clearly disturbed one of the old, old English scribes enough to change it. And I think force is a really good word because, you know, there's a real force to her sacral power later on in the story and a force to her authority as a teacher later on in the story, despite the fact that she brings out this kind of characteristic humility topos and says that, well, perhaps it's not a topos, but she expresses her own humility and says that she's not worthy as a teacher. But nonetheless, she her story is one that has a, a tremendous educative power. Well, she's, she's in this kind of funny position where in order to teach Zosimus, she has to confess to him, in a sense. She has to tell him how terrible she was so that she could prove to him how generous God's grace is. But if she tells him how terrible she was, she stands in danger of seducing him, of tempting him, of introducing ideas into his mind. This is a man who spent over half a century in monasteries, among other men, not that there weren't temptations in monasteries with other men as well, and, and not that those weren't recognized, but certainly with Zosimus, the idea is this guy has never thought about anything in his entire life. And she says this when he asks her who she is and what her story is. She says, I'm afraid that I will defile both the both you and the air. She's afraid of the power of her own words. And of course, it is her own words, which will teach him humility, the humility that he so desperately needs to learn in order to be saved. But it's a tightrope act. How do you teach someone through your own sinfulness? The best manuscript uh, version of this text is um, part of the Cotton Collection in the British Library. And it contains a rather unified hagiographic collection the Lives of the Saints by Alfrich of Einsham, who was a 10th century abbot who wrote these, wrote an extensive collection 
of Lives of Saints in the vernacular, which were clearly intended, some of them were intended for a monastic audience, but clearly they were also intended for lay instruction because of the fact that they're in the vernacular. And and it is a clear and unified collection. At the beginning of the text, Alfrich has this preface where he says, you know, please, you know, addresses the scribes, you know, please copy this correctly and perfectly. That didn't work out. <laughs> it did not work out when it came to this manuscript because right at the start of this manuscript, there's a table of contents which tells you, you know, which saints' lives you can find on whichever page. And conspicuously absent from that table of contents is the life of St. Mary of Egypt. And clearly the life in this manuscript has been copied by a third scribe, not the main scribe and not even the secondary scribe. And without going into too much bone-dry codicological detail, it's in a separate choir or booklet, which means that the decision to include it was quite a late one and it contains some blank leaves at the end. So it's kind of been slightly shoehorned into this collection. And I think this detail about the physical construction of the manuscript is useful because stylistically it's also a kind of a bit of a cuckoo's child as well because Alfrich's Lives of the Saints, I was rereading some of them last week and I'd forgotten, I know this is kind of heresy to say as a medievalist, but they're, they're quite bad. Um, <laughs> they are, they're formulaic. The language is often quite repetitive. There are certain words that you hear repeated time and again. He uses the word maox, meaning dung, to describe the kind of ways of the heathens. And you think, oh, did, it was, was there not more lexical range available to you? But it, it's as though he, you know, there are these certain words that he finds kind of so ideologically freighted that he has to just trot them out again and again. But the main point about Alfrich's Lives of the Saints and, and more specifically his female saints is that the kind of story he often tells, take, for example, the life of St. Agatha, is this beautiful young virgin who is some kind of terrible heathen pagan figure, often a, a man in power, falls in love with and desires to marry and she refuses to marry them and insists on affirming her faith to Christ. And therefore, this heathen figure will have her subjected to some kind of terrible torture. And the way that Alfrich describes these tortures, he almost seems to delight in the description, for example, of Agatha's breast being twisted and then sliced off as she's attached to a rack. And it makes for very uncomfortable reading as a, as a woman. And, and it's, it's painful. And then you come to this, I mean, imagine, what it would be like to read this text in, in this manuscript, which is the, the best copy of the text, and to have read these kinds of texts, and then to come across this life of Mary of Egypt, which seems to say so un unambiguously that it's okay to be a woman, and it's okay to lead this life of sin, and to have these sexual experiences, and to then become a figure of authority. And one of the things that's intriguing is that Mary's passion, her temptation, the the arduous trial that she has to go through is not a physical one that is imposed on her. It's not like she's boiled in a bath like St. Cecilia or any of these other kind of terrible torments that we often find in these lives of female saints. Her passion is is a very different one in the in the desert. Absolutely. Well, let me just back up, though, a little bit and say something to to which we're noti noting about Alfred. I think we could say his notion of virginity is is very simplistic. He's really thinking about bodily purity, uh, virginity as a, as a state of the body, really. And 
I think what we see when we're looking at texts from the 4th to the 6th centuries um, having to do with desert asceticism is that there is another sense of virginity as well, which is a kind of spiritual virginity and which comes from God's grace. So you can become, <laughs> it's a little like the Madonna song, you can be like a virgin in the desert, <laughs> touched by God for the very first time. <laughs> and that's really the point. You know, you can be physically a virgin and not very not be very virginal because you are sinful, because you are proud, because you think so highly of yourself for having kept your body pure. But you can be re-virginified, in a sense, if you simply love God enough. Should we just gloss, perhaps, the eremitical tradition? We didn't really talk about that at the start. But, you know, why why were people retreating into the desert in this period? And clearly these these lives become very popular and and something of that tradition lives on in different contexts later in the medieval period. But perhaps it's a, it's a good brief summary to say that when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine, the kind of opportunities for martyrdom, as it were, were greatly reduced and therefore great devotees were no longer able to show their fervent faith by dying for the for the cause of their faith. And therefore they had to choose other forms of self-abnegation and bodily mortification to prove their devotion. And this is where the kind of aromatical tradition begins. And of course, the, the kind of key figure is St. Anthony, who retreats into the desert and is often thought about as this, the father of monasticism, because he seems to have formed a community with some other recluses in this period. And this idea then is repurposed in various different cultural contexts. So in the early medieval period, there's a wonderful life of um, a saint called Saint Guthlac, who's a, who's a soldier. And then he becomes a monk and then he retreats into the nearest approximation of the desert that early medieval England can offer, which is the Fens in East Anglia. And there, in the middle of the marshes, in a disused barrow, he sets up home and he's tempted by devils, but he also dispenses spiritual counsel to various people that come to visit him. So just to, to kind of put a little bit of context about where this idea of, of wanting to be a recluse or a hermit comes from. Although, as you've said, uh, St. Mary is kind of, in some ways, not the perfect hermit. But I think you've just clarified this question of, of the passion of a saint or the suffering of a saint. So during the persecutions of Christians, you have the opportunity, let me put it that way, the opportunity to be martyred, which is uh, the straight get to heaven card, do not pass go, do not collect 200 drachma, <laughs> and you're, you're set uh, for, for all of eternity. Uh, so in a lot of the kinds of lives that Alfred tells, and which are very popular in the Middle Ages, the, the great climax of the story is the martyrdom of the saint. And they're always a little bit odd because these saints don't feel anything. They're often, they're often actually without any sort of pain. So terrible, horrible things are done to their bodies, right? They might be burnt, barbecued on both sides. They might have parts chopped off. They might be boiled, uh, boiled alive, but they, they seem to not actually have any pain. There's a kind of disconnect with the body. In the desert, in the age of this ascetic retreat to the deserts of Egypt and Palestine and Syria, the martyrdom becomes internal. There's not an external political force that is uh, sentencing you to death or to, to torture. You take on the torture yourself by going to be alone in the desert. And there's something kind of funny about that, because on the one hand, some of these texts talk about escaping the city because the city is so sinful and it's full of pleasures. 
and luxuries and temptations and distractions from God. So you go to the to the desert in order re- to be able to really focus on prayer, sometimes solitary, sometimes communal, but always ascetic life. On the other hand, what do these guys and sometimes sometimes gals find when they go to the desert? They find demons. They're essentially forced to they're forced to face themselves in the desert. And there's a sense in which that's even more painful than being in the in the cities and among other people with all of those distractions. They go out and they have to face the state of their souls. So I think Mary of Egypt has several different kinds of martyrdoms in that sense. It begins with her physical lust, her passion, which, you know, is sometimes described as, as with using the word lust in the Old English. But there's this odd moment where the translator uses the word throwung to describe her sexual erotic longings early on in her life. And throwung is a, is a word in Old English that's usually used for passion in the sense of suffering, in this older Latin sense of, of suffering. It's the word that's used for the passions, the martyrdoms of saints in a classical sense when they're being thrown to the lions or whatever. And she seems to already be beginning her martyrdom in her erotic youth and then continues it post-baptism in the desert, suffering both physically, fasting, being exposed to the elements, but constantly recalling her own sinful past and weeping, 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 weeping over her own sinful past. So she has this kind of funny martyrdom, which which seems to span, at least in the Old English version, seems to span right from her youth into her old age. And I think that's what's so fascinating. I think whoever the Old English translator was, and I was a little bit cruel to this translator earlier, I said it wasn't a very good translation, but I think they did do something neat in that they know, they understood that there was a relationship between her erotic desire and as you said, the force, this, this spiritual force that she later has, it also seems to have to do with love or desire to some extent. It's almost as if the eros, the, the sex drive is transformed into something else, but it's not put aside, right? The, these martyrs that whom um, Alfred likes so much, like the Lucys and the Agathas, they seem to have ephrosyne, they seem to have no sex drive whatsoever. There's nothing for them to overcome. They only have to protect themselves from other people. But with Mary of Egypt, she has to overcome herself or transform her own her own sinfulness into into something higher. Yeah, and perhaps we should just talk a little bit about when we first see Mary. There's this extraordinary scene of Zosimus. You talked about it a little bit earlier, but he sees this this creature on the horizon, and it's not clear whether it's the beast or whether it's a spirit, and it, is, it has a completely black body. And this white hair like sheep's wool. And this figure is wearing no clothing. So everything about her, her female sexual body appears to have evaporated, been just kind of burnt to a crisp by the desert heat. And I think that's an interesting thing, the fact that her body has lost its kind of sexual valence. And yet she has this kind of ongoing battle, as you say, and there's this incredible bit where she describes how she's tormented with the memory of the lewd songs that she used to sing in her youth and thoughts of wine, which she wishes to drink. 
It's true that she doesn't look like a, an appealing young woman anymore, but that doesn't mean she's not appealing to Zosimus. So in that scene when he first sees her, and he can't at first even tell what she is, if she's spirit or flesh, if she's an animal or a human being, his reaction is one of intense desire. I'll read another bit from Magenis' translation. Zosimus kept gazing intently at these details, and because of the longed-for loveliness of that glorious sight, Filled with joy, he ran speedily in the direction in which he had seen hastening that which had appeared to him there. Truly, in all the days before, he had not seen the sight of any human being or the appearance of any animals or birds or wild beasts, and therefore he ran eagerly and desired to learn what kind of wild beast that might be which appeared to him. Oh, I love that bit. Could you possibly read that in Old English? Of course, let me give it a go. Thawizan Zosimus yerne behalden de was. And for that ye will need a sweatness that a wold or fastnan ye see the he feyen ye fremed ofsliche arn on a helfe the he efstan ye sa that him there ataude. Ne ye sa he witodliche on alum dam dagum er nane menishliche ye see the ne nanre nutena or the fugela or the wilderahu and he for the arn yerniche and ye will no deton knawane. What that will deoraware the him ateode. So he's like a hunter in that moment. He's like a hunter and he's like a young lover. You know, there's this this trope in classical literature and in medieval literature of uh, hunting and and love being similar. Right? You can use the same language for both. And this is a cla- he, he's almost uh, stepped out of a Davidian poem in this moment and and is hunting his beloved, who's like a wild beast that she's running and he's running after her. And they spend kind of a slightly ridiculous amount of time in the story running after one another. They're on the move. And what I love is if you really start to picture the scene, forgive me, they're geriatric. They're quite old at this point. <laughs> Just running through the desert. She's completely naked, uh, but pretty fast and spry. Uh, he's getting exhausted and yelling after her to stop and talk to him. So I think it's funny, too, right? The, the Whoever wrote the original life I could appreciate the humor of the scenario of this kind of youthful passion in this elderly body. You're listening to Encounters with Medieval Women, a close readings miniseries from the London Review of Books. To listen to Irina and Mary's 12-part series, Medieval Beginnings, and our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription, Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. So this sort of leads us to, you know, what does Zosimus learn from Mary? What is the lesson that she has to teach both the audience of this text, be they readers or listeners? And what does she teach Zosimus? Well, here's where I have to add in a few more details, uh, which is that he very quickly starts to see that Mary knows a little too much, and Mary has some powers which are a little beyond the the mere human. So the first thing is she calls him by his name, and he's already a little bit shocked because how does this strange person in the desert know his name? At one point, they're praying she levitates in the air. Later in another meeting, she walks on water. She walks across the River Jordan. She seems to quote scripture even though she's never had any kind of formal education. And when he wonders about that, when he asks her about it, she says, well, I don't need any education. I have the 
inner illumination of the Lord to teach me. So she seems to learn directly from God in some way that's beyond these normal human processes of, of people teaching one another. That's the way he grew up. He learned from other people and then he went and taught others. She's outside of that system altogether and has this privileged relationship to God. You use the word authority a number of times already, and I think that's really to the point. She has this kind of authority that's beyond masculine learned authority. It can do the things that educated monks can do because she can pray and she can quote scripture and so on. And later it turns out she can write because when at the very, the very final meeting, he finds her body with her writing, it seems by implication, her writing in the sand next to it, where she says, I'm Mary and please bury my body and so on. So it seems she can write. How does she know how to write? Nobody knows. God must have taught her and so on. And there's this really great moment, which I have to say, I, I just love this. She seems to know exactly how things are done in his new monastery. And at one point, I believe it's in the first meeting, which is the longest one of their encounters, she says to him, by the way, there are some practices in your monastery which aren't very good and ought to be corrected. So could you let Abbot John know? to correct these things. And this is really neat because in the Latin, it seems to be there are some people in the monastery who need to be corrected. In the old English, it's been transformed to monastic practices. So someone's thinking about Mary of Egypt, this wild, uneducated sex pot running through the desert as an administrative mind, a sharp administrative mind. <laughs> and one of the very last things that happens in the whole tale is that Zosimus goes back to his monastery and they correct the practices in their monastery. So that's really a sense, especially in the Old English version, that she has access to a wisdom about male life that even the men don't. So... That's the intellectual side of Mary, and it's actually quite robust. When one starts to look for the little details, they, they pop out that she could do a lot of things. She has a lot of powers. But then the other aspect is just the humility. It's quite simple and profound, which is that Zosimus lacks humility, and he doesn't understand that he's not perfect. And that in the face of God, it doesn't even make sense to try to be perfect, because salvation is given. It's not earned. He doesn't really get that yet. He thinks he can earn salvation. If he's, if he's a good little boy, he can get all his check marks and get good grades on his salvation report card. And Mary blows all of that out of the water because the point is, it's just grace. It's just grace that's given. And repentance will get you more grace than thinking you're perfect already. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the kind of central appeal of the story, that she knows she's imperfect and she realizes it's an ongoing struggle. And that's the kind of in a way, the, the salvific power of the story for an audience. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you seek redemption, you, you can also be offered salvation. What do you think it suggests about the relationship a Christian might have to their body? Because there's, I, I think, a stereotyped version of, of medieval Christian thought in which, which is very body-hating, right? It's all about a kind of dualistic uh, division between body and soul, and the soul is good and needs to be cherished. And, it, and it, the soul is cultivated through the pain of the body. You, you weaken the body through fasts and through, well, at some point, flagellation or discomfort and try to decrease its hold on, on the soul. But what do you think the story of Mary of Egypt suggests about the soul and the body? 
Well, it is striking that clearly Mary's body is one that no longer is young and beautiful and sexy when we meet her, uh, or rather when Zosimus meets her. And so it does seem to suggest that the body must be mortified in order to achieve a state of enlightenment. But perhaps it's useful here to take a step outwards and and talk about other stories of the kind of so-called, air quotes here, harlot saints, Pelagia and Tice. Those are both stories about very beautiful women who have this incredible sexual appeal, who then become these these saintly figures. But in both of those stories, they, well, in the story of Pelagia, she is this incredibly beautiful actress and she's famed throughout the city of Antioch. And when we first meet her, it's described that she's wearing nothing but gold jewels and pearls and she even has jewels on her feet, but no clothing. Um, It's just a kind of unambiguously sexy description. And she's seen by this group of bishops, and there's this one bishop, Bishop Nonus, who sees her. And afterwards, he says to the other bishops, you know, did you not see how beautiful she was? And they all, you know, hang their heads in shame because presumably they they do recognize how beautiful she was, but they don't want to admit it. And he says, well, think about how much time this woman spends trying to be beautiful, trying to make herself pleasing to others. And so the good Christian soul should spend a similar amount of time making themselves pleasing to God. This is kind of really interesting because here beauty and sexual appeal are not entirely condemned because they're seen as to some degree a sort of route to salvation. Then later on in the story, Pelagia escapes and she goes and builds herself a little cell on the Mount of Olives and her body becomes so wasted that she appears to be a man and people think that she's a man. And when she dies, it's only when she dies that they realize, in fact, she was a woman. Again, I think that's an example of the body being mortified in order to achieve salvation and its distinctively feminine qualities being wasted away in the same way that Mary's skin is burnt black by the desert heat. But nonetheless, there's an idea that the body was nonetheless a kind of vessel, a vehicle that allowed the soul to take itself to the path of salvation. I think that's right. And I think there's something about this uh, this ascetic, how should I put it, way of thought, mode of being that has a lot of rules, but is not invested in following them. And I'm thinking, for example, of Barbara Newman's essay in the London Review on Medieval Bodies, where she talks about the way that Quote, even though the Bible prohibits cross-dressing, both saints' lives and romances celebrated women who donned male garb to spend their lives as monks, clerics, or soldiers. And that's very much true. Men and women are not supposed to cross-dress according to the Bible. And yet we have these heroic female figures, especially, who live as men in the desert. And some recently have been considered to be trans figures. They're certainly not figures who follow the rules in any kind of obvious or or banal or simple sense. And so I think there there is the sense that the these relationships are are, are not as simple as simply opposing body and soul or opposing uh, virginity and sexuality for example because sexuality is still a form of love and that's why I think there's this pop, the popularity of these of these repentant saints who are renowned 
either for sex work or for desire, for actually, for just desiring to be with lovers and to please, be pleasing to lovers. There's a sense in that sexual love is a stepping stone to love itself. It's not its opposition, or so to Christian love, I should say. So you have the popularity of Mary Magdalene in the Middle Ages, who's really, she's a composite figure, kind of put together by Gregory the Great uh, from different parts of the Gospels. That's the Mary Magdalene who becomes famous, as it were. And she, I think, is one of the most popular figures in the Middle Ages, I guess, after the Virgin Mary. It's Mary Magdalene for for women or for anyone else, because she's also, she's someone who loves. And her past in sex work is not in opposition to that. It's a stepping stone to the love of Christ. And what's what's quite interesting is that in the Middle Ages, the life that circulates about Mary Magdalene cannibalizes a bit of the life of Mary of Egypt. So near the end of the story that develops around Mary Magdalene, she winds up going to the desert and meeting a hermit there and telling him her story. So you see that these there's also something a little bit interchangeable about these figures, that they're all appealing and attractive, and they all have Pelagia, Thais, Mary of Egypt, Mary Magdalene. They have traditions of their own, but partly because of the names, there are a lot of Marys involved. <laughs> and a lot of them um, have kind of similar patterns to their to their stories. There's often a scene, often quite creepy or disturbing scenes where men try to get them out of the brothel, holy men try to get them out of the brothel by pretending to be customers. In one case, it's an uncle trying to rescue his niece from sex work. But before he reveals himself to her, he really plays the part of a potential customer very well. So there are these slightly titillating story elements which seem to be repeated in these tales. But what it all adds up to is a powerful interest in the early and then also in the late Middle Ages in women who are sexually uncontrolled or sexually um, voracious or, or simply sinful early on having then privileged relationship to God through that sexuality, not beyond that sexuality, not despite it. Okay, Irina, maybe let's perhaps read another passage. We've been thinking about what Zosimus learns from Mary, but I, I wanted to think about this moment towards the end of the text when he comes to see Mary again. This is also from the McGuinness translation. Then when the course of the year had passed, he came into the vast desert and eagerly hastened to the glorious vision, and he travelled for a long time, seeking hither and thither, until he perceived some clear sign of the longed-for vision and the place of his desire, as he eagerly looked both to the right and to the left with the keenness of his eyes, just like the most skilful hunter, seeing if he might be able to catch there the sweetest wild animal. When he could not find anything that moved, he began to soak himself with tears, and with upraised eyes he praised and said, Reveal to me, Lord, that hidden treasure of gold which formerly you condescended to show me. I ask you, Lord, for the sake of your glory. I think it's really striking that even towards the end of the text, Mary remains this this prey, and, and Zosimus is hunting her, and this these overtones of eroticism remain. But also this idea that Mary is still this bestial creature, at least in Zosimus's imagination, 
and perhaps in the imagination of the reader or audience as well. She remains this imperfect figure, but she hasn't achieved perfection, which I think is really interesting when we think about the moment right at the end after she's dead, when Zosimus finds her body. And you talked about how he, he finds next to her, written in the sand, her name, which is really kind of wonderful. It's this sort of big reveal that he just doesn't know her name until that point. But then as he's attempting to bury her body, this this lion appears. And interestingly, in, in the Old English text, it's a female lion. And the lion is intriguing because there are lots of lions. I mean, there are lions in the Bible and there are hagiographical lions. And so it's, it's a relatively common trope. I mean, we find, for example, in the life of St. Edmund, a similar sort of thing, this idea of animals helping saints. So St. Edmund has his head cut off and a good wolf finds the head and keeps it hidden in a bush until the friends of Edmund come and they they hear the head shouting to him saying, I'm here, I'm here. (laughs) And then they're able to reattach the head to the body of Edmund and he achieves sanctified status. Uh, So it's it's a similar kind of trope in the sense that, you know, here's this this beast from the natural world aiding in, in God's work. But I think there's a kind of larger symbolism perhaps that Mary having been this bestial figure having been the prey, having been hunted, having had these kind of base, bestial, sexual desires as we understand them at the beginning of the story. And now she's transcended beyond the bestial realm and beyond even the human realm to to the celestial realm. And Zosimus, a beast like the lion, must bury her body and bury the vessel that had held her soul such that her soul can then ascend into heaven. I left out this detail earlier on, but it's one that I've come back to over and over again, kind of obsessively in the way that one gets obsessed with these little passages that makes no sense in in medieval texts. When he chases her the first time, he's just seen her and she jumps into, into a kind of valley, which is marked as though a river, a dried up river had gone through it. And then she jump, she hops up the other side, turned away from him. And he seems to be stopped by this valley. He can't move, even though it's empty, it's dried. I think it's a wadi. I think it's really originally referring to to one of these desert riverbeds. But it makes no sense by the time it gets into the Old English. But there's something about this invisible river that still stops him. And there's another part in the Old English where she jumps into the river again, and suddenly it seems as though there's a river there. So there's something about the desert landscape which also flickers. I mean, the River Jordan is solid enough for her to walk on, but then, you know, is water. There's a kind of instability about the space that they're moving through, which seems to echo her instability as a person. She's not someone who can really be fixed down as one kind of human being or another, as as sinful or as saintly. Yeah, and there's, there's an interesting way in which the landscape responds to the lives of, of the human beings within it. I mean, thinking back to the way the sea is disgusted by her, you know, sexual acts on the boat. And as you say, there's, there are all these fascinating boundaries and borderlands in the text. And there's a moment in the text where it talks about her, her proceeding to the inner desert. You know, the idea that there, there isn't just a desert, but there's a, there's a place that's just so far from everything, so far from civilization. The way the text moves between these different places is, is quite exciting. It's, it's kind of interesting for the reader, but it's also full of symbolism. 
And, you know, the other thing to, that maybe we could say about her is that she seems to cover a lot of ground. Mm. <laughs> As opposed to Zosimus, who spends over 50 years in one monastery and then spends his time in, in a second monastery and just gets out to, into the desert these, these two times or three times. She travels. She travels from rural Egypt, I guess, to Alexandria. She gets to Jerusalem. She goes across the river. She's in the desert. And this is something we're going to see again in some of the figures we'll talk about in, in future podcasts, that we see women who are covering a lot of ground as they negotiate this this struggle between sanctity and or holiness and, and sinfulness and desire. They're moving through space much more than it's maybe appropriate for women to do. <laughs> The ideal holy woman would stay put, right? And I think it's that's true in the sixth century as well, uh, and and in the tenth century. But they maybe they get some of their authority from their movement, from the fact that they go to a lot of places and they gather experience, which is maybe the other thing to say. I'm thinking of the wife of Bath right now, where she's you know <laughs> her great opening line, experience and not authority, right? Mary of Egypt is already gathering experience in order to build her authority. I think what what we're going to think about a lot in later episodes is just what it means for a woman to be a teacher in the Middle Ages and where they get that authority and where they get their knowledge. I mean, it's very interesting thinking about that moment when Zosimus finds uh, the note that Mary has seemingly left for him. And the text says very clearly, you know, she had never she never learned to read or write, that this is some kind of divine uh, miracle, that she has this literacy. And this is, again, something we'll think about in later episodes, but the way that women, to some degree, might wish to pretend that they don't have literacy or they don't have this power, they don't have this knowledge because they lose their, their authority as teachers if they do, and therefore their knowledge has to appear to come directly from God in this kind of unmediated way. Are almost putting on a certain kind of simplicity. I think in the way Marjorie Kemp later says, I'm not teaching, I'm not preaching, right? I'm just telling some stories. <laughs> but I think, you know, that to come back to Mary of Egypt, I think that's, there's a way in which she needs Sosimus too. And, uh, you know, in some of the later versions of the life, uh, certainly some of the old French versions, there's no Zosimus. The frame disappears and you meet Mary first thing. She's, she's centered in, in the story. But in this, classic version which we have we have in the old english and which is circulated so widely in latin we see all of it through zosimus's eyes he's the figure through whom the reader enters the story and there's almost a strange sense that well i think that mary almost kind of called him to her because zosimus is a priest and that gives him access to something that she she cannot get which is the eucharist so she seems to want to be shriven once before she dies. She seems to want to confess and and to get the Eucharist. And he provides that to her. And then she she dies quite soon afterwards. So there's a sense in which she can never be fully separate from his masculine institutional power from the church, from the rights of the church. Uh, nor does she want to be. She still needs the thing that only can, he can have in which she can't. And then maybe we could say even that, you know, he buries her, he buries her, he gives her a funeral rite. And he's the one who then tells her story after her death. And she makes him, she swears him to secrecy as long as she's alive, but she allows him to tell the story after she dies. But there's a sense in which she owes her tradition 
obviously she's fictional, but within the logic of the text, she owes her tradition and her story and her message moving beyond her own life to him as a witness. He has to be the person who then goes back and tells the story. Which is something we find very, very commonly in lives of saints, particularly throughout the Middle Ages, that it's very rarely a woman's testimony that can form the basis of of a saint's life. It often has to be kind of validated by a male witness in order to have an authority. I want to come back to this question of what these stories serve. I mean, Mary of Egypt was an extremely popular story, as you mentioned, in the later Middle Ages. It's translated into French, into Spanish, into German, I think into Icelandic as well. So clearly there's there's a long tradition to these stories of these repentant women, sometimes in a kind of passionate tug of war with, with the men, the ascetic holy men who love them, right? What can we say about the ways that audiences might relate to them? Yeah, so I was thinking in the last few days about the popularity of this story and whether we can see anything of this story in contemporary popular culture. And I was thinking about the 1990 film Pretty Woman and how this depicts this in a way, you know, the story has many of the contours of the story of Mary of Egypt. It's about this woman who, well, it's not clear that Mary is a sex worker at the beginning of the story, but nonetheless a woman who she represents the kind of archetype of the fallen woman and she meets this man and yet she has this power to reform him because in Pretty Woman the point about Edward is that he's this kind of hollow man who can't love and Vivian is this woman who is able to love and through her love she's able to redeem him and I was thinking that that's that has certain similarity to Mary of Egypt and it's interesting for thinking about the dynamic between Zosimus and Mary that here this powerful male figure is reformed by this supposedly fallen woman. Well, I, and I mean, that suggests to me that these figures are also, in a way, possibilities for, for social or institutional critique, right? That the figure of the fallen woman who does not belong to the, the she's not part of the order of the people who, who run things, therefore can see things differently. You know, that reminds me again of Mary's little side remark, there's some practices that are wrong in your monastery. Let Abbot John know. Vivian reforms Edward, but she's also showing him what's wrong with his line of work, that there's a sense in which his line of work is rapacious and destructive. And she helps him see that. And then she obviously, the movie helps the viewer reflect on that as well. And I think that's actually the powerful thing about Mary of Egypt as well, in that she is suggesting that monasteries have limitations to them, that they can only take a person so far, spiritually speaking. That's actually kind of radical. You know? There's also an interesting question about what these stories, how these stories might be interpreted in, in the modern day. And I was also thinking about other contemporary stories that have something of Mary of Egypt. And I was thinking about Fleabag. Um, and <laughs> again, that is a, that is a, I mean, you know, Mary of Egypt, in a way, she's, she is the fourth century Fleabag. She's this woman who, who has this, I mean, Fleabag is a story about the central character who has these very hollow sexual encounters. Um, there's this moment in, in the show in, in season one when she talks about how it's not so much the sensation of sex that she enjoys, it's the kind of chase and the awkward of it. And, you know, in our 
kind of post-1960s conception of sexuality, the only kind of sex that's truly sinful is that that is without pleasure. And so this, in a way, is, is the kind of modern version of Mary of Egypt's sinful sexual misdemeanors. But that is, Fleabag is also a story about redemption. It's a story about being imperfect and learning to make better choices and coming to terms with your sort of past sins in a way. And so there's something, the story of the, in quotations, harlot saint has echoes in contemporary culture. I think so. And I think, you know, it's it's so easy to take these old tales of um, of repentant women and, and treat them en masse. And, but in fact, they're quite different from, from one another. Pelagia, as you mentioned, is really a figure of love. She's a figure of love and beauty that's simply misdirected. And once the, the love and the attempt to please are, are directed correctly, she becomes holy. Mary, I think, as you suggested, really seems to desire the sin more than the pleasure. Mm. And she really likes the chase. So just as she and Zosimus are always running around in the desert after one another, she's she's running at the beginning. She's always running. She's running towards something. And she wants other people to run towards her. So there's something about, <laughs> I keep saying there's something about Mary, but there's something about Mary, which almost has to do with a kind, almost has a kind of emptiness in it. Right, that she's trying to fill things, <laughs> and I'm not sure with her if she ever really fills it because we only really ever see her running and running and running, and the only time she stops running is when she's dead. So I, I see her as a fundamentally different figure than some than even Mary Magdalene in that sense, whom we we see as loving loving Jesus, loving Christ. She is a great figure for the love of uh, of God in that sense. Mary of Egypt is a little more complicated, and that's why I think she. I talked about her slightly rapist behavior. I mean, not it's literally she's a rapist on the on that boat to Jerusalem. There's a sense that she stays dangerous throughout, and and again, that's where I think we sort of have the sense of her being uh, possibly a demon, possibly an animal, you know. Even in late antiquity, you if you were a woman out in the desert or even a man out in the desert living the ascetic life, you would probably live in a cell. You would stay in one in one place. She almost becomes one with the desert. She's absolutely restless. And that, I think, is part of what's so compelling about her as a figure is that even though she's encased in this narrative and she's there's a moral attached to her, she's a riddle that can never be fully answered. Yeah. Thank you so much, Irina. Thank you, Mary. So join us next time when we'll be discussing a very different kind of holy life with the work of the mystic and anchoress Julian of Norwich, who wrote the first work in English that we can be sure was authored by a woman. Thanks for listening. To listen to Irina and Mary's 12-part series, Medieval Beginnings, and our other Close Reading series, sign up to our Close Reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description.